0: Hello, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com. Today is the 7th of February 2013, and welcome to the second in a series of interviews, Does Anyone Really Believe in World Government? And today I'm very fortunate to be speaking to James Corbett, who joins me over the internet all the way from Japan. James Corbett is an alternative media investigative journalist and the creative genius behind the Corbett Report, which is, and I'm going to quote here, an independent, listener-supported alternative news source operating on the principle of open-source intelligence and providing podcast interviews, articles and videos about breaking news and important issues all the way from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics and the central banking fraud and more. So, James, thank you very much indeed for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Julian. And let me say uh, on the air what I just said to you off the air—that I was—I've uh, been listening to uh, your pro- podcast for some time now for the last few weeks, and I uh, listened to your conversation with Doctor Stan, the first part of this series uh, earlier today. And I must say, I was quite impressed with that conversation. So, um, so thank you again for for inviting me on. Well, that's very kind of you to come on. And I wanted to speak to you.
0: Actually, I wanted first of all to thank you for all the work that you've done at the Corbett Report over the last five or six years, because I think that. What you've achieved there is very, very impressive, and I know that you've been a great inspiration to many people, myself included. So first, I just wanted to thank you for what you've done. But the main reason I wanted to speak with you is to ask you about your research into a matter which I guess in some ways could be seen as a thread that runs throughout your work, and that's the subject of the New World Order. And uh, I'm not going to attempt to define what that means, because obviously I want to ask you about that in a moment, But before we get on to that, for people who don't know much about your work, could you say a little bit more about the Corbett Report, what kind of angle it's coming from, and um, what you mean by open source intelligence?
1: Yes, of course. Well, the uh, Corbett Report is basically a multimedia website that puts together audio, video and uh, articles uh, in text form on various subjects, as you say, everything from eugenics and geopolitics to science, philosophy, history and, uh, of course, central banking and and uh, false flag terrorism. So it covers quite a range of subjects. But I think it is all united, as you say, by the concept of a new world order. And uh, it is based on the principle of open source intelligence. And open source intelligence, for those who don't know, is what the intelligence agencies out there today at least say openly and publicly that uh, is where most of the intelligence that they get actually comes from, which is to say not from secret clandestine operations and not dropping spies behind enemy lines or anything of that sort, none of the James Bond type antics, that in fact the vast majority of the information that they need is actually openly published and freely available to all through, in the old days, of course, uh, television, newspaper, those types of sources, but uh, increasingly, of course, on the Internet. And there is such an incredible amount of information that is openly published on the Internet that, uh, in fact, you need very little of these secret clandestine top secret classified uh, files in fact so much of it is is openly available so I'm simply uh, uh, applying that uh, that principle in finding some of the, the best sources of information that I can and sharing that with my listeners and viewers and that's the way I like to think of the Corbett Report not as me telling people the definitive truth per se or handing it to them but simply collecting various sources putting my interpretation on it and asking other people to uh, inviting them to check that out for themselves so that's the principle on which I operate, and uh, the Corp Report has been functioning since 2007 now, and it's uh, still going strong and even growing. So I'm quite uh, blessed to be able to do this full time now. Yeah, it's great stuff.
0: And what was it that first inspired you to get into this work in the first place? Because uh, before that, you were a teacher, weren't you, by profession?
1: Indeed. In fact, for the first few years of the website, I was teaching even as I was doing the website. So it would uh, basically involve 20 hour days more often than not. Good heavens. But uh, luckily, I have uh, I've managed to do this full time now so I can tone it down to 16 hour days. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I was uh, teaching at the time when I started the Corbett report. I suppose I could wax philosophical and, uh, and talk about how my entire life has prepared me for doing this. But really, in more concrete terms, I started the research for what became the Corbett Report website in about 2006, in the fall of 2006 specifically, when I moved into a new apartment here in Japan and it came with an internet connection for free. And it had been the first time in several years that I had the internet in my home. And so it was uh, in the course of daily internet surfing and discovering some of the new technologies that had developed online and new platforms including YouTube and Google Video that I was able to my heart's content start to look into all sorts of different information documentaries and things that I found interesting mm-hmm. and it was actually around that time of the fifth anniversary of nine eleven, and I think as a knock-on effect of the fifth anniversary of nine eleven and some of the events that were taking place around there and there was a, a large conference that was organized in the United States that was televised on C-SPAN that generated a lot of interest and I believe Charlie Sheen was first going public with his doubts about 9/11 at that time and that was generating a lot of publicity in the United States and I think as a knock-on effect of that there were a lot of people who were energized and motivated to put videos on YouTube about 9/11 truth mm-hmm. and so it was that I at around that time started to encounter all sorts of related videos to the types of videos that I was watching about 9/11 truth and that was really I believe the uh, the first entree I had to this world of research into what has roundly and widely been criticized or put to the side as conspiracy theorizing. But Mm -hmm. uh, once I started to look into this information for myself and started to discover that, in fact, a lot of this is verifiable, and there's definitely something to a lot of this information, that's when I really went down the rabbit hole, as we say, and uh, started the website not too long thereafter.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. As you were saying earlier, my last interview was with uh, Dr. Stanley Monteith of Radio Liberty, and we talked about the various uh, secret societies in the push towards this new world order. Now, by that, he means the establishment of a one-world government run by a controlling oligarchy, and we, of course, we talked about the usual suspects, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg Group. Now, from a conventional historiographical point of view, the term New World Order tends to be seen as just something that's said by statesmen at dramatic moments in world history, you know, like World War I, World War II, the fall of communism, just as a way of kind of expressing the, the hope that there will now be a new era of close cooperation, you know, between sovereign nation states. And that, that's all it means. It's not a world government or anything like that. So my question is, how do you understand the term New World Order in the way that you use it? And I mean the way, let's say, that you use it because you use it with your book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. How do you mean it as you use it there?
1: My forthcoming book, I should stress to the audience. Uh But yes, so you've broadly outlined the two main definitions for this term. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive or that we have to pick one or the other. I think they're both operative. I think it is both a term that is used in moments of great political upheaval by the political class. But it's also, I think, something that is used as a vision for a type of one world government system, which, again, sounds quite a bit more that there's more to it than what there really is. I mean, I, I think we can see that as just the the age-old quest for empire, which has uh, dominated political dynasties since since really the rise of civilization. And I think we've seen that uh, all the way going back thousands of years and looking at the Caesars, et cetera. So I think it's just part of that same old idea that has uh, gripped would-be rulers of all sorts and stripes. But as I say, I think the term New World Order encompasses both meanings, and we can see. Some of interplay with that, for example, you mentioned that this is a phrase that is often used by the political class. And, and for example, it was made popular once again in, in the modern political era by George H.W. Bush back in the early 1990s when uh, there's one famous clip of him uh, saying that in a speech talking about the Gulf War and the rise of a new world order in which nations will be part of a, a world system of law and order, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the term itself stretches back much further than that. And and some of the more interesting uses, you might look at someone like H.G. Wells, who, of course, is popularly known as a science fiction writer from the uh, the early 19th century, but in fact was actually quite politically involved. And, uh, and he wrote a lot of nonfiction, including a book called The New World Order, talking about a technocratic utopia that he had envisioned would come into existence and was working towards. And that's when it starts to tie into some of the more nefarious uses of that term, I think, as this other type of vision of a a one world government order. And it takes on different hues and inflections, depending on who's using it and in what context. But I think we can see a lot of the even a lot of the political uses tend to have this idea that somehow this is going to be a, a new world system, which is going to encompass the entirety of the geopolitical realm in some way, in some key way. This is going to be some sort of upheaval. And I think the real dream or quest of the people who are, as Dr. Stanley Monteith outlined last time, uh, is our dreaming of that world government is really a new world order as a type of oligarchical rule of a very few elite Mm. and whether or not everyone who employs this term is consciously aware of its entire context or is simply echoing a a kind of political catchphrase is debatable and I think worth looking at on a case-by-case basis but certainly I think some of the uses by people like George H.W. Bush and uh, Henry Kissinger and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and others who are I think quite well aware of its use within certain circles and within some of those organizations outlined by Dr. Stanley Monteith last time uh, I think that has to be used in the full knowledge of that context.
0: Yeah, I'm taking that quote by George H.W. Bush there. I actually have it in front of me, so I will just read it. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge, a new era freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice and more secure in the quest for peace, an era in which the nations of the world, east and west, north and south can prosper in living harmony. I and mean, it sounds really fluffy, world peace, harmony, all that sort of thing. And then I found Webster Tarpley's view of that, and I've just got to quote Webster Tarpley because I just love his style. He says, The breathtaking collapse of the Soviets opened up megalomaniac vistas to the custodians of the imperial idea in London drawing rooms and English country houses. The practitioners of the great game of geopolitics were now enticed by the perspective of the single empire, a worldwide imperium that would be a purely Anglo-Saxon show with the Russians and Chinese forced to knuckle under. Like the contemporaries of the Duke of Wellington in 1815, the imbecilic Anglo-American think tankers and financiers contemplated the chimera of a new century of world domination. So that's how Webster Tarpley sees Bush using that term there in 1990. Do you agree with that analysis?
1: Well, I think it certainly has to be taken within that context of the fall of the Soviet Empire and then the beginning of this new stage of concerted political action to bring about this Gulf War and the the sort of united action that was taking place on that front at that time. It, there certainly was the sense that this was a new era in international politics and one that was free of the old Cold War encumbrances and could embrace this new uh, idea of nations acting together in, in something of the fulfillment of the ideas of the United Nations, etc. So I think on the lo- back of that, those kind of lofty aspirations, it was quite easy to float a phrase like new world order and to have it seem like a benign entity. But again, that comes from, I think, an ignorance of the phrase and its use uh, by various political actors. In, in various different political eras that I think, again, does have that implication or, or connotation that this is a quest towards a world government of some sort, whether or not it's actually called that or whether it's called a, a system of law that's followed by nations or whatever other type of fluffy rhetoric is put on it. I think it, it ultimately amounts to that.
0: Yes, that brings up the question, of course, of whose law? I mean, the system of law sounds fine, but it depends who's actually writing the laws
1: <laughs> and how, how they're being enforced.
0: Indeed. I'd like to ask you about uh, some of the other less well-known groups that you mention in a recent article, because I've just been speaking, of course, to Dr. Stanley Monteith about those three groups that I mentioned earlier. But in your article, Rings Within Rings, How Secret Societies Direct World Politics, you mention some less well-known groups like the Royal Institution of International Affairs, Chatham House, which is another name for that same organization, and the Canadian Council of Chief Executives, also Common Purpose UK. Could you tell us something about those other groups and how they fit into the picture?
1: Well, basically, this is a, uh, for a series of reports that I'm doing right now for BoilingFrogsPost.com, the website of FBI whistleblower Sybil Edmonds. And the, the purpose of this series of reports is to try to shine a light on some of the other organizations of influence that I think are working in concert, or at least certain elements of these organizations are working in concert with the more well-known groups like the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg, and ones that have been explored, I think, to a greater extent in the alternative media. think think it's important to understand that there are many of such organizations and certainly not all of them are secret societies, I think, in the way that most people would think of a secret society as a uh, as an organization of mm. of uh, shadowy men in meeting in back rooms and uh, uh, chanting uh, séances or, or whatever <laughs> it is that people have the image of a secret society a lot of these organizations are are quite public and uh, work and function quite publicly and above board to a large extent and it's really a question i think of how this how we can slot these organizations into a bigger picture of political control and and influence in the modern era. And I don't think it's as simple as to say that this group or that group necessarily controls world affairs, but that there are certain actors within these various groups that work in concert based on a shared ideology towards goals which – are more or less held in common, even if sometimes there may be disputes about how best to implement those ideas. And I want to somewhat complicate the notions that I think can be simplified sometimes in the alternative media, that there are these one or two or three groups that we should focus all our attention on. To the contrary, I think there are many, many different groups, and I'm just trying to shine a light on some of them. And uh, and I think one of the particularly important ones is the, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, a.k.a. Chatham House, which is one of the the organizations that I think is at the root of a lot of other organizations around the world. Uh, Firstly, quite explicitly, for example, the Royal Institute of International Affairs has a lot of branch organizations in different countries, including the Council on Foreign Relations, which is actually a kind of brother or sister organization to the RIIA. But also quite explicitly in various uh, Commonwealth countries, there's an Australian Institute of International Affairs. There's one in Pakistan, for example. There is a Canadian Institute of International Affairs that morphed into the Canadian International Council, but it's the same organization. So this is an interesting organization because it comes directly from a group that was founded by Cecil Rhodes. And some of his uh, adherents back in the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, this is something that I pick up from G. Edward Griffin, someone that I would hope your audience is familiar with. If not, I hope they check into uh, G. Edward Griffin and his work uh, documenting these types of groups over the past half century. But uh, he came up with this lecture that he delivered called The Quigley Formula, talking about Carol Quigley, who Dr. Stan mentioned in your conversation last time on this podcast. And, uh, and basically, he identified this structure called the ring within rings, uh, rings within rings, which is the idea that these groups, these secret societies, as we know them, are not necessarily, as I say, these groups of shadowy men meeting in back rooms, but that they're large organizations sometimes, sometimes including in the case of the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, with thousands of members that are publicly known and, and publicly recorded, but that. Within these organizations themselves, there are uh, layers, shall we say, of closeness to the center of the organization so that you have the outer rings populated by thousands of people. And then you might have an an inner organization within that Council on Foreign Relations or whatever group you might be looking at that might consist of a few hundred people. And within that, there might be a group which consists of far fewer people. And the idea is that each time one goes further in towards the center of this organization, one is told or has the impression that one is becoming part of the the elite. Oh, now you're the elite. You're in the inner sanctum mm-hmm. of the the Council on Foreign Relations or whatever group it might be, but that in fact, that itself may be a type of ploy that's used uh, for psychological reasons to make someone believe that they have entered the inner sanctum when there is yet another inner sanctum to enter. And basically, the basis of this is that the real center of these organizations was this organization founded by Cecil Rhodes, which was the direct impetus behind the creation of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which itself seeded itself out in these different organizations across the world. And Cecil Rhodes, quite explicitly uh, in his writings and and in his life, was seeking to revitalize the British Empire, again, to create a one-world government system, and his adherents may have slightly altered that formula, shall we say, but kept the main goal of a world government, a world system as part of their aim. And uh, once one starts to look at these, this incredibly complex yet easily understandable pattern, one sees that it's more a reflection of how power functions in society than some sort of grandiose and nebulous conspiracy theory. What we see Mm. are identifiable actors who are at the heart of these organizations who are united by a shared ideology. And it's, I think, the ideology which is really the key to this rather than necessarily this or that particular group or institution.
0: Yes, I'm going to ask you about this ideology in a moment. I just wanted to note that this structure that you've been talking about with the outer circle and the inner circle actually does go back, doesn't it, to the Cecil Rhodes organization in the first place, where he had the Society of the Elect, and the Association of the Helpers were the outside ring, but the Society of the Elect were the, um, indeed, Rhodes himself and his group of three cronies. So that structure was there right from the beginning, wasn't it?
1: It certainly was. And in fact, uh, intentionally so. As uh, Griffin points out in his lecture, Cecil Rhodes consciously identified the idea for that structure as coming from the the Jesuit order and also the the order of the Illuminati, of the Bavarian Illuminati that was created by Adam Weishaupt in 1776 which itself was quite influenced by the Jesuit order as well. So this was the idea for that structure, which was then developed by Rhodes, which was then taken over by Rhodes' followers in the the decades preceding his death. And that's, I think, really the basis of where this comes from, at least the organizational idea.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of Freemasonry, particularly with the idea of the different degrees. So those people are on the lower degrees, perhaps up to the third and fourth degrees, really don't have much idea what's going on on the higher degrees. It's that same kind of thinking, isn't it?
1: I think so. And I think, again, that this is a system of social control, which was identified quite a long time ago, and thus has been implemented time and time again in different social institutions. It's always the idea that one is progressing and becoming uh, more elite as one goes. And Mm. I think it's quite easy to take that type of structure and to simply assert, well, yes, okay, this is the top of the structure. You are now the the innermost of the innermost, even if there is actually an even further inner sanctum that the uh, that particular adherent doesn't know about. So, so I think it's quite a powerful system of control, and it also plays on fundamental human psychology: the the idea that one uh, uh, feels like one is superior to others because one has progressed further within this organization, or or at least as it's been. Been laid out to them. So it plays on a lot of fundamental human desires and needs. And I think that that aspect of social control was figured out quite a long time ago and is simply being implemented in these different organizations. hmm.
0: You mentioned in one of your articles that organizations like this are hidden in plain sight which is a term that I associate with occult symbolism in architecture where you have various buildings, statues and the like which may depict various bits of occult symbolism but people just become so used to seeing them there that they just forget that they're there essentially but you say this with respect to these groups so what do you mean about them being hidden in plain sight?
1: I mean, because uh, when you look at organizations like Chatham House or uh, the Canadian Council of Chief Executives or some of these other organizations that I'm taking a look at or some of the more well-known ones like the CFR, these are organizations that to a large extent publish their proceedings, will publish uh, their own publications. Uh, In the case of Council of Foreign Relations, for example, Foreign Affairs, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs has its own publication and they will openly publish papers, policy papers, which they hope will actually be implemented by the the governments of the various countries that they're in and more often than not end up being implemented in some form or other and for example, I mean just as one example, we could turn to Hillary Clinton when she became Secretary of State giving an address to the Council of Foreign Relations saying that it's handy to have the CFR's offices so close to her office in Washington so that she doesn't have far to go to get her orders and it was uh, perhaps Say uh, meant as something of a joke, but I think there might be more truth to it than what Mm. uh, was was she meant to let on there. And I think that's really the way that I envision these organizations having the most, at least the most direct and most blatant effect. In that, again, all of these papers and publications are openly available on their website with the membership lists and the the list of organizations, usually uh, large Fortune 500 corporations that publicly support and donate to these organizations, and yet. With all of this being publicly available, it becomes this strange type of, I guess, double think in the population where you point to these organizations and you say, well, look at the nefarious influence these are having on governments and really directing society and directing policy. And people will say, well, it's, a, it's an open organization. You can go and read about it on the website. Therefore, there's nothing insidious about it. And so I think it is it is that system whereby people aren't really motivated to take a look at it because it is public. And I think that's another interesting aspect to, quote unquote, secret societies, is that there's always something of an allure to the idea of an organization that's keeping itself secret and mysterious. But if an organization acts in the public light and makes its documents publicly available, suddenly it becomes uninteresting. So there's a lot of different ways that that can be played on. One of which I think, in fact, is an organization like WikiLeaks, where if you were simply to publish a lot of the the diplomatic cables, for example, of of Washington, you would recognize it for government propaganda. But if you would leak certain cables and make it seem like it's information that wasn't supposed to get to the public, suddenly it becomes more interesting. And I. I think we've seen that as a political tactic for decades and decades and decades of information being selectively leaked to the press and it becoming a news story because it has been leaked. And I think we can see that same idea working within these types of organizations that – In order to make it seem bland and uninteresting, all they have to do is openly acknowledge their group and what it's doing and publish uh, the details of their papers, etc. And suddenly a lot of people will simply not be interested in reading it because it just seems like work at that point. It's interesting that Dr. Stan uh, last
0: time was saying that something of the opposite of that is true with Bilderberg in the sense that that is kept very, very secret. And that draws a lot of attention to Bilderberg, but he was saying that he thinks that most of the game is not being played there, but with the Trilateral Commission, in his opinion.
1: I understood his his argument there, and I'm not going to argue against that per se. I think that really Bilderberg, in fact, is a case in point in this. I think at the time when it was a hidden organization – Truly 99.9% of the population never even heard of it. It was truly an unknown. I think it was a meeting at which significant people were Certainly working behind the scenes to manipulate uh, public opinion, as has been openly and on the record admitted by, uh, for example, Etienne d'Avignon admitting that uh, the idea for the eurozone currency was really first hammered out at Bilderberg, etc. And uh, we have this now from leaked Bilderberg documents from 1955, going back to the, the second year ever of the meeting of Bilderberg, where they started talking about the uh, European Union, etc. And of course, a lot of the Bilderberg attendees in those early days ended up becoming the people who actually worked to forge the European Union. So we can trace a lot of this quite openly. But I do suspect that now that Bilderberg is gaining so much coverage, it probably as an organization is not as important in the driving of World Agenda as it has been in years past. Mm -hmm. It's starting to become more publicly known. And I think as a consequence of that, it's probably having less of an effect. It still maintains something of its former stature, but I think the real key towards an organization like Bilderberg, once again with the Rings Within Rings idea, is that the Bilderberg Steering Committee, for example, which is composed of just a few dozen of people, as opposed to the 120 or so which are invited on an annual basis, is really the key, the nexus, the people who who don't change from year to year and who uh, really do, I think, wield so much of the power within an organization like that. So I think there is still some power wielded by Bilderberg, but I think that it, to a certain extent, might be more of a talking shop, whereas something like the Trilateral Commission or the CFR might be the organizations through which the same characters who are, for example, on the Bilderberg Steering Committee and also members of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and many of these other organizations can actually influence and make that influence concrete in political terms. By, for example, putting out policy papers, which then are implemented by people who, as Dr. Stan points out, many of them are trilateral commission members or Council on Foreign Relation members. So, it's, again, it's a, it's a nexus of individuals who are members of many different organizations. And I think it's more a question of those, those individuals and how they are united and how they work together in different organizations than it is focusing on one particular organization.
0: Yeah. And um, going back to this business about being hidden in plain sight and what you were saying about uh, places like Chatham House, all the information that they produce there is openly available to the public, so they say. Is that really quite right? Because they do have something called the Chatham House rule, which operates there. And I believe you say also operates at Bilderberg. So how does that work?
1: The Chatham House rule is an idea that has been defined by Chatham House, which is, again, the name for the Royal Institute of International Affairs, taking its name from the the house where it has its headquarters in London. And the rule itself states something to the effect that the contents of a meeting can be described in a general way, but the actual participants in the meeting and who actually said what should not be disclosed. So when a meeting is held under the Chatham House rule, one can discuss in general terms what the the meeting involved, but one can't actually disclose anything about the particulars of who was really involved in discussing that. The idea, of course, is that this fosters a o- more open type of dialogue than would be possible if this were taking place uh, completely in the open, because... Of course, certain of the attendees of these types of very important meetings wouldn't want these types of ideas to be associated with themselves necessarily because, again, people can discuss more things more freely in that type of context. So that's the cover that's given to it. And that certainly applies to a lot of the meetings of the Chatham House, obviously, of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Bilderberg, mm-hmm. groups like Common Purpose even, which is an interesting charitable organization that started off in the UK. There is a Common Purpose International, which provides leadership, training, seminars for uh, people of all different sorts of walks of life. And certainly its founder has some interesting connections to some other organizations, uh, including think tanks like Demos, which is another interesting organization I suggest people look into. But long and short, is common purpose itself also follows Chatham House rules in many of its meetings. And uh, it's a question of exactly why certain pieces of information or why certain individuals don't want to be associated with, with various statements. And again, throwing the blanket of secrecy over it when it's done selectively can seem quite reasonable at times. Well, I could understand that. I uh, We can all relate to that in our own lives. We might want to discuss certain things among a certain circle of friends, but not have a wider segment of the public overhear that conversation. So it's asking, again, to play on what people understand. But of course, what has to be kept in mind is that a lot of the attendees of these types of meetings are, in fact, political figures who are at least theoretically responsible to their electorate. And of course, depending on what country this is taking place in, there are usually laws and rules governing what can actually be discussed in private by public officials and public figures. So there's a lot of implications to this rule. And uh, even its legality, I think, in certain Mm. cases may be questionable.
0: And you mentioned earlier about this ideology which unites uh, many of these groups, and that is the ideology of collectivism, which you mentioned in your article. And that comes from the work of G. Edward Griffin, I believe. It was your interview with him where he brought up that issue. Can you um, explain how this collectivist ideology works, because it has this power to unite or rather transcend what people normally think of as the left and right in politics? So how does that work within the New World Order?
1: Well, collectivism, quite broadly defined, is is a political philosophy that states that individual rights and freedoms, at least to a certain extent, should be subsumed to that of the group or the collective. And I think that this is based on an ethical justification that comes from a philosophy uh, of utilitarianism, which is the idea that many people might have heard, the greatest Mm -hmm. good for the greatest number. And this is a, a moral axiom that was developed in the 19th century by people like John Stuart Mill. And it sounds quite reasonable, I think, at first glance, something like that, that, oh, well, it's maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people. And and in that aim, of course, we have to subjugate some of our own personal freedoms to achieve that aim, but it's for the best of society. And I think we're instilled from a young age in this society that we're growing up to be predisposed towards both that ethical justification and its political implications. And its political implications are interesting. It, of course, is perhaps most readily identifiable in some of the the more extreme political philosophies that developed uh, perhaps most remarkably in the early 20th century when we're talking about the development of radical socialism and uh, national socialism, a.k.a. fascism, in uh, the 1920s and 30s in places like Italy and Germany. I think that's where collectivism was perhaps most blatantly apparent, where the idea was that we had to have these centralized authorities of one sort or another that would look after the society as a whole and would determine what is the greatest good for the greatest number and how to implement it. And I think that's where a lot of the opposing viewpoint, the idea of classical liberalism and individual natural rights would find traction against a philosophy like collectivism by pointing to the the travesties that occurred in the name of socialist and fascist dictatorships within that era, and perhaps the most famous example of that comes from uh, The Road to Serfdom, written by Frederick von Hayek back in the early 1940s, right there at the height of World War II, and obviously as something of a response to the development of fascism and, and communism and socialist dictatorships across Europe and in the Soviet Union. And that's, uh, that's really one of the, I would say, probably best known works uh, refuting that collectivist ideology in the 20th century. But interestingly enough, I think collectivism has a more subtle variety as well. And I think that is really at the heart of the governing systems of much of the Western world right now. And this isn't even a, a controversial opinion. If you even look at the uh, Wikipedia entry for collectivism to give the most sort of broad take on this. It does, for example, at at the present time, at least, indicate that collectivist political systems include representative democracy, wherein, of course, not every individual is able to directly assert their own freedom or, or to defend that, but that some rights have or, or privileges have to be given up in the pursuit of the collective social good so that, for example, the majority of people supposedly cast a vote for Barack Obama in the 2012 U- U.S. presidential election, and therefore the minority who did not vote for him have to in some way secede some of their political power in order to have that representative democracy function and that again seems quite reasonable and it's presented to people in as quite a reasonable principle but it should be seen i think in the development of political philosophy as a very radical philosophy because it flies in the face of what had been what seemed to be a progression a development that was taking place in political philosophy that began to coalesce in figures like john locke and uh, was then taken up by the figures of the U.S., uh, the American Revolutionary era, including perhaps most famously people like Thomas Jefferson, which was the idea of natural rights. And of course, this was reflected in, in documents like the Declaration of Independence as inalienable human rights that cannot be uh, infringed upon because they're bestowed by a creator, in the words of Thomas Jefferson. But whatever formulation that's used in, this was an idea that seemed to be at the heart of really so much of Enlightenment thinking and, and seemed to be a progressive and from the idea of feudal uh, medieval peasant society where basically there were there were a few chosen to be the rulers of the the world by god himself and the rest were chosen to be peasants living on you know at the will at the pleasure of the royal elite mm-hmm. and and as a development from that there was this idea no in fact there are natural human individual rights which are bestowed upon us by nature of being human beings and nothing else they do not come from governments they're not instituted by human authority they come from divine authority or, or whatever formulation people want to use for that. And that's exactly, I think, where, for example, we can indicate at least the rhetoric that surrounded something like the the American Revolution. So the collectivist idea directly subsumes that, directly overturns that by saying, well, actually, as a matter of fact, there are things that can be taken away from individuals based on this need for the greater good, for the greater number. And I think these two ideas are in something of an ideological warfare. And this relates back to what we've been talking about, because I think this is, at the very least, it's a nice way of cloaking and masking the oligarchical intentions of the people behind some of these groups. I think a lot of the people who do the work for these few who are within the inner, inner sanctum, the inner, inner ring of these groups— do believe in this, but I think the people who are at the very core of the system, whether or not they actually believe the the type of woolly rhetoric around this collectivist philosophy or whether they're simply interested in their own power, I would tend to assume it's the latter rather than the former.
0: It does seem to be a perfect tool for control because it's the elite who, in the end, decide what's good for the collective.
1: That's exactly the point. So the the idea of collectivism is that there needs to be some sort of central authority in order to determine what the greatest good for the greatest number is. And this, of course, is interpreted in different ways and different people make different arguments for different styles of subsuming that individual freedom for the greater good. But it always tends to end up in the same place when we look at some of the disasters, for example, of Nazism or Bolshevism, which became – Soviet uh, Stalinism, really, I mean, uh, eventually, and uh, we can see this indicated, for example, as I say, in the works of, of Hayek in The Road to Serfdom, where, for example, he wrote, quote, individual freedom cannot be reconciled with the supremacy of one single purpose to which the whole of society is permanently subordinated. And writing in the Second World War, he gives the example, to a limited extent, we ourselves experience this fact in wartime when subordination of almost everything to the immediate and pressing need is the price at which we preserve our freedom in the long run. The fashionable phrases about doing for the purposes of peace what we have learned to do for the purposes of war are completely misleading for it is sensible temporarily to sacrifice freedom in order to make it more secure in the future. But it is quite a different thing to sacrifice a liberty permanently in the interests of a planned economy. And uh, this, I think, touches on one of the, the fundamental underlying points of the collectivist ideology, which is this constant need for some sort of idea of a threat from the outside or some sort of threat that needs to be faced, which therefore justifies the taking away of liberties and freedoms of natural rights for, again, the preservation of that collective good as defined by the people who are in control of the system. So as you say, I think this is a very convenient tool of control for people who find ways of putting themselves in power, in the seats of power from which they can pretend to be the mouthpiece for that collective good and to speak for the collective will. And
0: that brings me neatly to this question about the war on terror as a threat that is possibly being manipulated in the ways that you've just been discussing so what I'm wondering is whether you consider this war on terror, the connected U.S.-NATO actions in the Middle East, North Africa, as being, um, well, not really as it's presented by the mainstream Western media, but as moves, really, on a wider chessboard in the game against rival superpowers like China and Russia. So do you agree with that assessment that the war on terror is essentially bogus? And if so, do you see that game as being ultimately orchestrated by groups like those we've been discussing?
1: Well, I think there can be no doubt that the the war on terror, as it's been presented to us, is really just part of a, a larger historical context that makes it quite apparent that this is not about an actual war that's being fought so much as a struggle for control. And this has been identified in previous eras as the strategy of tension, which is a psychological warfare tactic which creates some sort of chaos or destabilization or actually creates terror in order to justify Another group coming in to protect people from the terror. It's in fact one of the oldest kind of ruses that one could imagine. It's something that has been admittedly used by the NATO powers, for example, perhaps most startlingly in Operation Gladio, Mm -hmm. which I've been outlining in some of my recent uh, podcast episodes and interviews, and which I plan to do more work on in the near future. Again, this is a a declassified and fully admitted operation that stemmed from a NATO plan, which itself was an outgrowth of strategic services, aka the CIA, back in the World War II era. But uh, the NATO operation involved arming and equipping right-wing nationalist organizations to act as a potential bulwark against Soviet invasion and occupation of Western Europe and uh, somehow or other this operation ended up becoming operable even though of course the Soviets never did invade but suddenly there were terror attacks taking place perhaps most notably in Italy and most that's the area that's been most studied And these terror attacks were in fact created and funded and and brought into existence by these groups that were part of these NATO stay behind operations. And it was part of a strategy to blame these terror attacks on left wing organizations in order to crack down on those left wing organizations in various countries. This is called the strategy of terror. And when we start to take a look at the current war on terror within that idea, that rubric, we start to see that it fits very much into that historical context. And we can look back at the early part of the 19th century and the British Empire and how it administered uh, these types, the same types of tactics, going back to the formation of of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, and, and the deep in involvement of British and American intelligence in a lot of these groups going back to the beginning of the 20th century. And we can follow that same thread through to the terrorists that the war is being supposedly waged war on uh, right now. And again, this is part of a a broader strategy to create these types of of one form or another. I'm not here to say that these people don't exist and that these people don't believe in the ideologies for which they are dying, but that they are being manipulated as part of a grander geopolitical game in order to create the justification for military operations in various countries. So as one microcosmic example of that, we could look to the recent operations in Libya, for example, where we had NATO forces actively and openly collaborating with groups like the LIFG, which is an al-Qaeda-linked organization. But of course, that doesn't seem to matter at all, given that they were on the side that was attempting to overthrow Gaddafi, which was the admitted and on-the-record aim of the NATO powers. So again, it shows that there is a charade going on here and that this has to do with geopolitics. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of the different Pieces of this puzzle do tend to converge on the idea of an encirclement of China and Russia by the NATO powers and an attempt to, at the very least, cut those countries off from other sources of support and to effect some sort of military encirclement and presumably at some point conflict with those powers. That's where this seems to be heading in a geopolitical sense. But then there is the question, I think, a much deeper question to ask about whether or not these are really two opposing sides or whether, like the Cold War, has turned out to be. It was really something of a charade that was created by the collectivists, the, the people who at least outwardly were expressing this this idea of collectivism uh, from both sides. Both the, the both sides of the Cold War being controlled by the same people and both sides of the, the war on terror being controlled by the same people and both sides of the China-Russia versus NATO conflict being controlled by the same people. And that's where I think we would come back to this idea of those organizations of influence that we identified earlier and their attempt for, towards world government.
0: Do you also see the massive expansion of the domestic surveillance in the West as being part of this scene as well that you've just been talking about?
1: Well, this would be, I think, the other side of that equation. If the strategy of tension is employed to create the conditions for something to happen, I think not only can we see that the war on terror creates convenient justifications to invade countries at will, basically by saying that, oh, Al-Qaeda is present, therefore we have to go get them. But it also provides on the domestic front an opportunity for – the power and apparatus of the state to basically grow unimpeded in the name of protecting the homeland. And again, even the phrase homeland in reference to, for example, the United States is something that would have been politically unthinkable even a couple of decades ago with all of its connotations stretching back to, of course, uh, Nazi Germany. But now it is uh, not only viable, it's actually becoming one of the most unwieldy bureaucracies in the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security. So, of course, this provides a a perfect opportunity to basically grow and expand the, the nature and power of the state and to create create all sorts of institutions and organizations and, uh, and methods and processes, which again would have been politically untenable in any other era. So that, for example, in the wake of 9-11, we had the unveiling of the NSA's uh, warrantless wiretapping program, whereby the NSA was enabled supposedly due to a uh, presidential directive in 2002 to start conducting surveillance on supposedly people connected with or talking to al-qaeda whether they're in the united states or anywhere else in the globe without so much as a warrant as required by law and uh, why even that this was needed really for them to step around such things as the fisa court the foreign intelligence surveillance court Which was admitted for long periods of time to be a a rubber stamp for the American government. It almost never in its entire history ever denied a warrant to the government when it presented information. But the fact that they felt the need to step around this shows that this is part of a larger power grab. And that's just one aspect of this police state surveillance grid that's going on into place right now and is becoming formalized. But it shows how, at the very least, the war on terror provides a nice pretext for the the establishment of a a type of surveillance grid that would have seemed almost unthinkable in any other era.
0: Right. This question seems a bit convoluted, and uh, I'm going to have a go at asking it anyway. So let me set up the question. Let's consider the two main areas in which a push towards New World Order can be most clearly seen, at least it seems to me anyway. So first of all, we have the US-NATO expansionism, which many people would see as a kind of corporate fascist expansionism and making way for Western-style corporate industrial domination. So let's say, just for the sake of it, to call that, uh, let's label that right wing, because I think a lot of people would see it that way. And then on the other hand, we have clearly a move towards a New World Order through The Earth Charter, Agenda 21, Climate Change Agenda. I know that's the case because Lord Monckton made it very clear at one of the UN climate change conferences that the world government was in view there. I think it appeared in one of the draft treaties. And these, it's often claimed, have to do with the destruction of industrial nations, the redistribution of wealth between nations, as it says in the Earth Charter. So we could label that as a kind of left wing, say a globalist kind of left wing. So the question is here, Do these ultimately represent different elites behind these moves, or could we be seeing a kind of 21st century manifestation of what Anthony Sutton believed was happening in the 20th century, which you were referring to, I think, a few minutes ago, that the same inner circle of collectivists were behind the financing of both Nazi Germany and communist Russia? Do we have, in the modern era, a kind of globalist right wing and a globalist left wing, both ultimately being manipulated by the same elite?
1: I would say so, but it's not necessarily as definitive as that. I think there may be overlap between various factions of what is, again, a group of individuals who are united by an ideology, the ideology being ultimately, I think, the establishment of that world government. But there are different paths towards the establishment of that world government. So this might be easiest to, I think, exemplify in a specific example. So, for example, within the United States political context, you have People like, for example, Henry Kissinger, who has traditionally been associated with the right side of the left-right political spectrum. He's served many Republican administrations, and he represents, I think, broadly speaking, that – I suppose the global domination by force type of idea of the NATO-US expansionism, etc., that path towards some mm-hmm. sort of world world order at the end of a barrel of a gun. Broadly speaking, I, I wouldn't want to simplify it to that degree, but I think that broadly we could say that that's the side of the argument that someone like H- Henry Kissinger would come on. Another person who I think would be the mirror image of that and coming from more of the left side of that spectrum would be someone like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who, again, has had enormous influence, certainly a, a number of democratic administrations most notably in the jimmy carter administration where he was national security advisor and i would say that his uh, strategy might represent a more Palatable idea of world governance, governance and world dominance by uh, the left side of that political spectrum, whereby it's not necessarily direct confrontation and bombing countries to smithereens directly, but more like playing different sides off against each other from a distance and being sort of the the innocent bystander on the side, yeah. and uh, and and I think that's one example of how there can be two different aspects, two different ideas, two different frameworks for accomplishing the same thing, and I don't necessarily believe that someone like Kissinger and and Brzezinski are mortal enemies. I think they're connected by a number of organizations to which they both belong. For example, Henry Kissinger, part of that Bilderberg steering committee, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, a former Bilderberg attendee. So again, they are connected to some of these organizations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same idea of how to arrive at the world order, or even necessarily that they have the exact same idea of what that world order would look like or who would be involved in it. But at the end of the day. I think, of course, they have more in common uh, with each other than they would with with you or I or most of the people listening to this podcast, for example. So I think that we can look at it in those terms. It's not necessarily that these are the same people in the sense that they are identical. It's not necessarily that they are mortally opposed to each other. It's more, I would say, that they have a similar aim, but they have different methods for getting there. And I think that each side of that fight, assuming there are only two sides, there might be a number of different factions, but each side in that struggle wants to become the dominant one that will use their way to get to proceed forward. And in some ways, I think you could make the argument that at the very least, that sort of right-wing idea of the, the expansionist philosophy and the left-wing idea of the UN Earth Charter, the climate change agenda, all of that need each other in order to become even more effective. When you can have two sides that play off against each other and seem like the only two options that are possible, it's easier to steer people into that debate in a way that they don't even understand their choosing sides in a false choice that's been presented to them so they it can make it look like that there are actually two different agendas on the table when in fact at the end of the day they lead towards the same idea
0: so do we really have the picture here of a kind of convergence of various groups and individuals all of whom just happen to believe that some sort of world government is a necessity a kind of desirable goal for history is that essentially what we're looking at
1: I think that that's – again, it's hard to psychologize, I think, these people. I think there are different motivations behind different people who are involved at different levels, who have different understandings, who might be involved for different reasons in different groups. Again, I think there's a tendency to want to simplify this to a a simple black or white or to say that there is this or that phenomenon taking place when I think there are a number of different things that converge. And I think there are as many different reasons for different people to be involved at the various levels of this vast spectrum sprawling organization or organizations as there are people themselves. I think everyone has their own parts to play in this. And obviously, the easiest way to describe this to the vast majority of people is to appeal to their sense of, oh, this is about greed. And people are looking for personal enrichment and finances, for example. They want to be the ones controlling the purse strings. I think that's the easiest way for most people to understand it, because again, most of the people that you or I would interact with are the type of people who work for the li- their living for their entire lives. And that tends to be one of the defining points of their life. How do you make you earn your living? How do you make enough money to survive? Although I think that that's too much of a, a reductionist idea for this philosophy that's driving at least the people who are, I think, in the core of this rings within rings structure, because I think those people are, are well beyond the, the need to provide for the physical or material yeah. safety of their family or even the wildest dreams of avarice. I think we're talking about the point where Money doesn't even have meaning, I think, at that level of society, because these are the people who actually control the central banks that actually create the money itself. So money isn't the object for these people. I think it has to be seen in terms of, at the very least, just a lust for power and control. And I think that might be explained by recourse, for example, to psychopathy. And uh, there have been mm-hmm. some very important studies towards that idea that there are scientifically uh, deducible from, from everything that we can tell. There are people whose brains actually do process the world differently than the vast majority of people and that they do not have the actual standard empathies and emotions that the vast majority of the population does. And the best estimates are that there's something in the range of 4% of the population that falls into this category of psychopathy. And it, I think it at least provides one interpretive framework that it tends to be these types of people who fall into the positions where that who are literally willing to supersede any normal, what we would consider normal bounds of ethics in the pursuit of power over other human beings. And again, that's just one interpretive framework, of course. Yeah, sure. Of course, there's spiritual aspects to this, etc., which I don't tend to go into in my own work. But uh, I know, for example, people like Dr. Stan that you were talking to last week Mm -hmm. do. And I think that that's absolutely important for people to follow. I don't presume to be an authority on those types of matters, so I don't speak on them to that degree. But, uh, But certainly there is something much, much more fundamental to this than money itself. And I think this also ties into one of the other driving parts of this whole agenda, which is the idea of eugenics. And I think there is a certain lust to maintain a certain bloodline Or certain bloodlines. I think that's very much a part of this agenda. And I think that what motivates some of these people at these elite levels of society is the idea that they want to propagate their gene pool per se into the future and to eliminate others from that gene pool. And I think that's absolutely an important part of this that has to be understood to really see the bigger picture.
0: And curiously with that, from their perspective, that could be seen as a a purely good thing, because obviously if they are the superior ones, then that's going to be the best thing for the world if they're in control.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. And this is exactly why eugenics was developed in the late 19th century by British gentlemen scientists who uh, came up with the theory that basically British gentlemen scientists and their ilk were the uh, the creme de la creme of the human species and uh, thus deserved to be at the apex of civilization as they so self-evidently were. And it's, of course, a thoroughly uh, not only a racist ideology, but a total pseudoscience. It is quackery on so many levels and has been... I think disproven on so many different levels, scientifically speaking. Even, but unfortunately, eugenics still persists to the current day under different guises. And I think that's where we can identify, for example, a lot of the the motivation behind the United Nations and a lot of its operations, and behind the climate change agenda, and uh, many of the other aspects of this is a real lust to depopulate the majority of the planet. And I think that that is another key part of this agenda, which unites a lot of people on different sides, different factions of. this uh, New World Order quest, I think another thing that unites a lot of these people is this drive towards a, a smaller humanity that would be, I suppose, manageable in the sense that they, I think, ultimately want to bring in, which is a sense of a totalitarianism that goes far beyond anything that's been seen before in history. I think that a lot of people dismissively say the new world order is just the same old world order. But I think we are on the cusp of a scientific revolution that enables a type of tyranny, the likes of which could never have been dreamt before in human history, to the point where we are getting to the point where we can actually engineer the species, the human species at the genetic level. And I think when we start taking that into account as part of the game plan for this New World Order system, it becomes something of absolutely the utmost importance, not just to ourselves or to our loved ones or even to humanity as a whole as it exists right now, but for the future of the human species which is why I think it's so important for people to inform themselves about this and to really start engaging with this information and coming to their own conclusions. Again, I'm not here to provide the definitive answers that people must adhere to. I'm simply here to provide information as I've found it and and some of the sources that I find useful.
0: Well, paradoxically, you're talking about this sort of technological nightmare, which seems to be dawning, brings me to a question, which is to uh, ask us to close on a positive note. (laughs) Because what I want to do is to ask you how we can resist this new world order. And if you will allow me just for a moment to employ a bit of biblical imagery in your podcasts, you say that we shouldn't fight the beast, that is physically fight, because if we do that, we're just giving the beast greater justification to strike back at us. Uh, Neither should we just protest to the beast to bring about change, because that just serves further to legitimize the beast. But rather, we should stop feeding the beast. And that's something that we have in our power to do. So can you explain what that power is?
1: Well, I'm intrigued by the the idea that we've been given false templates to follow in terms of solving our problems or of fighting enemies. And I think part of this false template that we've been provided through so much social conditioning and, and the media that we consume, etc., is this idea that we must find the heart of the organization. We must find the head of this organization. We must somehow kill that person or that group or whatever it is, eliminate that, and everything will magically turn to the better. And I think that that is a false template that we've been given, and and one only has to think in broad terms at pretty much every science fiction dystopia you've ever seen, and in the end, if it turns out positively, it's only because they have managed to decapitate the head of the beast in in whatever way it is, Um, (laughs) whether it be The Lord of the Rings or Tron or any of these types of movies or or things that you can think of. The idea is you kill the, the head bad guy and everything turns magically into a peaceful utopia and I think that that is fundamentally completely the wrong way to look at it because I don't think that at the end of the day that the particular individuals who may or may not be the ones holding the ultimate ring of power at this particular moment are irreplaceable. On the contrary, there are many, many people who would be so chomping at the bit to get into that position of power should that old guard be swept away for whatever reason. And I think it has to be something that is a more fundamental revolution, not of overthrowing a specific instantiation of this idea, but overthrowing the idea altogether. And that can only come, I think, from the building up of an alternative system to which people want to actually apply themselves. Rather than attempting to simply have some wage, some sort of heroic war that will solve everything once and for all. I think we have to actually just detach ourselves from this system that we've been woven into. And unfortunately, that's probably as difficult to do as that analogy would make it sound. Because we are so woven into a fabric of society that it is difficult to imagine really extrapolating ourselves from all of these processes that rely For so many of our daily needs on these vast, overwhelming corporate infrastructures that tie into these various organizations that themselves pull the strings of various governmental institutions, it's such a vast and unwieldy system that it can seem quite overwhelming at times. How can a single individual affect this? But I think that we have to look for any and every possible point at which we can at least start to detach ourselves from those systems of controls, to start to try to reassert some sort of independence. And that can be an extremely small thing. Like, for example, instead of, I don't know, going out and buying your your groceries at the grocery store, perhaps you can go and buy them at a farmer's market or at least some of your groceries you can get at a farmer's market or you can grow it yourself in a, in a vegetable garden or something of that sort is a tiny thing on the individual level. But I think it is the only thing that in the long run can lead to the type of society that we want to bring to fruition I think again it's the small things like that to which if we start to apply ourselves with diligence and with perseverance that in the long run we'll be able to overthrow this but unfortunately as I say we are on this cusp of this scientific revolution which makes a scientific dictatorship possible so unfortunately we don't have necessarily generations of time in which to do this so that puts a bit of a time perspective on this, a a ticking. I don't want to say time bomb, but you get the idea. A certain time limit to the accomplishment of this, which means that we don't have a lot of time to waste in deciding which of these structures we want to give ourselves over to. Either we continue going into this technological structure that is part of this corporate matrix, which involves even such things as buying the next generation of iPhone, which they're already saying is going to have its uh, own fingerprint scanning technology. and, And all of this corporate technological, industrial, defense, military, big brother, spy grid matrix to which we're signing on every single day of our lives willingly and and knowingly and actually paying our money to buy into, or we start creating alternative structures which don't rely on that system. And it's a choice that we have to make in our lives, I would say more quickly than has been apparent at any other time in human history.
0: And it's interesting because when you mention that, immediately I think to myself, well, that's got to be too ineffectual because, you know, it's too small scale. How can we really make any difference that way? Surely the best way is to get out there and protest in some way, because that seems to be the way in which we've been brought up to think that you raise your protest out in public together as a group. But what you're suggesting seems to be much more on an individual, uh, intimate basis, each person making slightly different choices in their life.
1: And I think this goes back to really putting the uh, the rubber to the road as it comes to ideology. I mean, if we are fighting against this collectivism, which is at least being espoused by the people who are in these organizations – then obviously the way to combat that is not through some sort of collectivist movement in which we subsume our individual identities and hope that we can form some sort of political basis for action with enough members of the community agreeing to do what we're doing in the same way and towards the same ends and all of the compromises that come from that political process. If people truly believe in the opposite of collectivism, if they believe in individualism and the the power of that to transform the society in which we're living, then Surely that can't be affected by those types of collectivist movements. Clearly, it has to come from something more individual. And I think that the point is, again, not that we all have to wait for everyone else to be part of the same movement and to think the same way and do the same things. I think we have to actually start expressing that in our own lives, in whatever small form that might take, and hoping that that might motivate others to join us, not because we are compelling them to do so, but because. They see that it is a better way to live their lives. And I think if there is anything to this, if there is anything to the critique that we're laying out here, it has to be exemplified through our own lives and our own actions. It can't be something that we simply talk about and that we hold meetings about and we hopefully manage to form some kind of protest movement in order to achieve. It has to be something we can demonstrate to other people. And I think the more effectively we can do that, the more effectively we'll be able to overcome this system, not again through revolutionary struggle, but through the the actual creation of an alternative to which people can subscribe
0: and you have done was it 5 or 6 years of work now on all of this haven't you and it's uh, is it videos and podcasts that you've been producing are all those archived where people can get hold of that information
1: They surely are. They are available for free download on CorbettReport.com, which itself, again, is commercial free. So I try to make this information as freely and broadly available as possible. And I encourage people to take that information, download it, consume it. And hopefully, if it does have an effect, if you do find it to be effective, then hopefully spreading it to others in whatever way you can to try to get them thinking about this information. And again, I don't want to present myself as the authority or the person telling people what to do. I'm simply offering ideas. And to a large extent, I think that the Corbett Report is a an archive of my own development of my own philosophy and thinking on these matters, and I think I've changed quite a bit from the early days of the Corbett Report in terms of my political philosophy and outlook. But hopefully that's something that people can look in on from the outside and gain a perspective on at the very least how I've developed in my thinking and what kinds of sources I've used to do that. And again, hopefully I have faith that ultimately this type of example will at the very least spur others into thinking about these issues and seeing how best they can confront them and do something about it in their own life. And that's really the most I could ask for out of this work.
0: And you have other websites too, don't you? You, I don't know whether you still have climategate.tv. I looked at that for a while, but I haven't looked at it for probably several months. Does that still exist?
1: That it was discontinued, but all of the original reporting that I did for that was also mirrored on the Corbett report. So that has been preserved. But uh, yes, that was discontinued. But I am actually planning, hoping to launch a new video series in the near future that will kind of continue the spirit of that ClimateGate website. Certainly, I also have FukushimaUpdate.com keeping an eye on the situation in Fukushima, Japan. And also I have reportagebook.com, which currently is an empty website, but will be populated when the book is available, which will be any decade now, I'm sure. I was going to say,
0: I think you've been saying that for a couple of years now, haven't you? Uh,
1: At least three. So uh,
0: I better get on that. How much of the book has actually been created?
1: I would say the majority of it. It's um, now in the process where I'm going through the first drafts and double checking the information, adding information, sourcing the information, making sure I have everything, which is the tedious and time consuming part. And it's very difficult to balance my daily duties with that kind of extra additional mm-hmm. duty. So I really do hope that I will get the time to do that. And I might actually have a bit of enforced time to do those types of quiet activities in the near future, as I'm about to welcome the first member into our family here, my wife and I are about to have our first child, which I imagine will greatly change the way that I'm able to create podcasts, et etc., but might open <laughs> up some time to do things like working on the book.
0: Well, congratulations, and uh, it certainly will change your life. There's no doubt about that. It certainly changed my life.
1: (laughs) All I can say is I'm looking forward to it absolutely unequivocally. I think it's uh, just the most exciting thing that's ever happened to be in my personal life, and I'm I'm just so excited for it. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, but I'm under no illusions that I'll be able to continue my work in the same way that I'm doing it at the moment anyway.
0: (laughs) You'll have to do it between changing, well, as we say here in the UK, nappies, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, James, it's been great to have you on. Thanks ever so much for sparing the time to come on The Mind Renewed. I've been listening to you, I guess it was since uh, early 2009, something like that. So it's a great privilege to have had you on the podcast. Thanks very much.
1: Well, thank you again for the opportunity. And I'd like to mirror this on my own website. So for my listeners who might be encountering you for the first time, perhaps you can tell us about The Mind Renewed.
0: This is a project which and I have to say that uh, you have been some influence on that as I've already indicated and other researchers like Dr. Stan and um, actually other Christian thinkers in the past like Francis Schaeffer who's a Presbyterian minister who had a lot to say about analysing where we'd come to really in the modern world. And uh, the reason why I wanted to set up The Mind Renewed was that I've been very concerned that people in the Christian church just don't seem to be very open to the idea of the truth movement and all the questions that we have about, say, 9-11 and various other issues. And there's just a tendency to look upon that whole scene as, I'm going to use the word, conspiracy theorizing. And you know, I felt that I needed to address this from a Christian perspective. But also I've been concerned that because of this whole reticence amongst Christians to look at these matters, that people who are looking in from outside can look upon Christians as people who are just wedded to the establishment and not able to think outside the box. So, you know, it's from that whole kind of perspective of wanting to clear the air, really, that I've decided to start The Mind Renewed.
1: Well, that's excellent. And again, I'd encourage people to take a look at it if they haven't yet done so. Again, that, uh, that interview with Dr. Stanley Monteith was fascinating. Also, your recent uh, interview about Aspartame with uh, Corey Brackett. Again, quite a fascinating conversation, and I learned quite a bit from it. So, again, my hats off to you for starting this endeavor.
0: Well, thank you very much. And indeed, my hats off to you for all the work that you've done over the years. Thank you. Well, I very much hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with James Corbett in the next couple of weeks or so i hope to be conducting the third interview in this series does anybody really believe in world government and on that occasion my guest shall be dr martin Eldman, a theologian who is greatly concerned about many of the issues we've been touching on in this series so far and again if i may i'd just like to ask if any of you use itunes to catch your podcasts i would be very grateful if you would consider subscribing to the mind renewed within the itunes store because I'm told that it is the number of subscriptions that a podcast has that determines how much exposure it gets through iTunes. Comments may also count, so thank you to those of you who have already written a comment, and especially to uh, whoever it was who wrote a comment in the last week. Thanks very much. It's wonderful, certainly, to see some feedback this end, because otherwise, of course, it silence this end. So if you found this or any of the other podcasts a positive experience in some way and you feel that others might enjoy them or benefit from them too then please do subscribe within iTunes and perhaps even leave a comment. So once again I thank you for spending this time with me whenever and wherever you happen to be. You have been listening to The Mind Renewed with me Julian Charles and my guest James Corbett and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.